Watch this. Hello and welcome back to the Cookie Jar Golf Podcast. I am Sam Williams and I'm joined today by Bruce Fitzpatrick. Hello. And we've got two guys on from, from Clayton Drees and Pont. We've got Ed Cartwright making his second appearance. Ed, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, man. Nice to speak to you. Have you dried off yet? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I have just about dried off from a very wet afternoon at New Zealand, but I'm good now. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, it's great to have you back on and uh, someone we've been really looking forward to getting on the pod for some time now. Uh, Frank Pond. Frank, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So um, for the benefit of our listeners, we we wanted to get together with you guys and talk a little bit about Harry Colt and, and some of his influence across um, the UK and across the world in terms of golf course architecture, because it's a really good junction point, I think, for where the history of golf course architecture and where everything stems from. But before we start talking about that, I want to maybe talk a little bit about you as well first, Frank. So for the benefit of our listeners, do you want to maybe introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background in the game? Yeah, well, I'll try to keep it brief. Uh, basically, uh, we have a saying in Dutch, which is, I think, 12, uh, 12 jobs and 13 accidents, um, which is, uh, I don't know, that's probably a bad translation. But what it means is uh, one of my big weaknesses, I usually uh, used to get bored with what I was doing pretty quickly. The good news was I wasn't scared to do something new once in a while. Um, I f- first trained as a civil engineer, worked for Royal Dutch Shell, building offshore platforms in the North Sea in the beginning. Uh, quickly discovered I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. And I thought, what else can I do? And somebody at university said, well, why don't you go and get an MBA and do that in America? So I applied to all of them and I got accepted to my surprise at one of them. And I went to University of Chicago, which is one of the top schools in America. Uh, Didn't know what I wanted to do. And if you don't know what you want to do, you become a consultant. So I started off at McKinsey, which is a famous one. that was a bit too stuffy for me. And I then joined a more startup uh, Harvard-based uh, uh, organization called Monitor, which was based around uh, Mike Porter, a famous strategy uh, prof there. Worked there for five, six years, then got the itch. And I got a call from London uh, you know, if I wanted to be an investment banker. And I said, no. And they said, why not? I said, because all investment bankers I know are assholes. And... Uh, <laughs> But then the person said, what are you earning now? I said, X. He said, oh, but you can earn 3X if you become an investment banker. I said, okay, well, maybe we should talk. Um, <laughs> and so I went there. Uh, actually, when I arrived, I, I realized I undersold myself because everybody else was earning 5X. So, um, you know, just uh, nothing has changed. I think it's, it's a little bit more normal now. So I did that for a number of years uh, by accident because everybody else left at the end of the time. I was head of telecoms worldwide for Deutsche, uh, traveling all the time. I was making 250 flights a year, flying more wow. than a pilot, um, which is not good for your health and not good for your mind. And I decided to stop, do something productive with my life. Didn't know what. Um, I wanted to do something creative. But I couldn't write, I couldn't paint, I couldn't sculpt, I couldn't do anything, couldn't act. And then I saw two years, Master of Science, Golf Course Architecture. I thought, hey, I, maybe I could do that. And so I applied, got in, uh, and I did an apprenticeship with uh, David Kidd. Uh, what I did is I just wrote, who are the five best-known golf architects, or ten, and I didn't get an answer from seven. Three replied, one of them was Kidd. 
within 30 minutes. And the reason why was we were both members at Makrahanish. And he said, oh, you're Makrahanish, that's cool. And you're a banker. I just sold a project to KKR founder and to Charles Schwab. And you need to tell me what I need to charge and what the deal is I need to do with them. Uh, and I said, okay, and then in return, you can be my apprentice. So I, that's what we did. And I, uh, that's how I got started. And I'm still very grateful that he spent the time to allow me to run around his projects. That was Power Squad in, in Ireland. And later on, I was at Nanea in, in Hawaii. Uh, then did the studies. And uh, then I started on my own. In the end, I decided not to, we, we decided not to get together because the kid was very global. And I you know, just came from traveling 250 days a year. I didn't want to do that. Wanted to be stuck in the Netherlands, start a family, et cetera, et cetera. So I started my own company. And I was lucky because, um, you know, it's tough. It's a tough business. I was good in selling because that's what I used to do in, in, in as, as a banker. That was my main job is trying to get business. But it was still tough to get into the golf architecture business. Um, and the luckiness, the lucky I had was that Holland had um, eight cold courses that nobody was taking any care of. Well, Donald Steele was, but sort of half-heartedly. Um, and... I was a member at one of them and they kind of said, well, didn't you just do this study? We have this problem here. Why don't you, why don't you take your thing on it? Why don't you try it? And that's what I did. And they liked it. And then it's a small club. So the other of the other eight, six others joined and said, Hey, can you do the same stuff for us? And then the first club that, and then, and then at a certain point when I was into that three years, four years down the road, I got a call from the UK, actually from Tandridge, because they had heard my name from Henry Lord, who had written a book about Colt. And they'd ask him, who should we talk to when we restore our cold course? And he said, well, the usual suspects. And there's this crazy Dutch guy. <laughs> and uh, so they went like, oh. And I remember I was sitting with a car. It was a birthday party. And I had the car full of screaming kids on the way to the swimming pool. And there was this call. Yeah, this is a cold course in uh, England, Tandridge. And we were wondering if you want to work for us. And I thought, this must be one of my friends taking a prank on me, you know, because... <laughs> So I was trying to swap the kids in the back down, like, please be silent, you know. But in the end, I got the job. I was lucky enough to get the job. And then from there on, it sort of mushroomed and mushroomed. And uh, that's how we got there. So that was the short, semi-short version of how I got to where I am now. i tell you what, Sam, you must love the fact we partnered up with all these shy retiring violets, eh? After Mike Clayton, you now get Frank Pont. There's a, there's a theme. <laughs> Exactly. We can see it. But it's fascinating hearing about how you've gone through so many different careers. And can I, I sorry, Sam, Sam, interrupt you? I um, One of the first things my boss in consulting told me when we went to my first client meeting, he says, try to blend in with the wallpaper. <laughs> <laughs> they must have some very loud wallpaper in Holland, Frank. <laughs> Well, he didn't, he didn't succeed, obviously, but, you know, that's what he told me. So he, he must have seen the same as what Ed was alluding to. Sorry for interrupting you, Sam. No, 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 not at all. And so you've principally been doing a lot of work across continental Europe and the UK, and yeah. a lot of that is restoring golden age golf courses, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it's, you know, you, to be honest, what you, what you find is people who know nothing with golf always ask me, like, so what do you do? Do you build new golf courses? And you kind of go, no, well, they don't build that many in, in Europe. And if you'd want to build at the highest level, you basically have to be a nomad and, and travel all over the world. And that's something I didn't want to do when my kids were small. And we're now getting to a point where they're 11 and 14, so it's getting more manageable. If you then want to do, you know, what's much easier. The other thing is new builds like hunting elephants, you know, you get one or you don't. If you don't get it, you're hungry. 
Mm. If you do restorations, it's like hunting rabbits. You're never going to be stuffed, but you, you always have something to eat. And so that's very pragmatic. Uh, and it was much easier because everybody, you make the margins in new builds are higher than in, in restoration and, and renovation. So um, when I got into the business, everybody in Holland, most of the other architects in Europe were just focusing on new builds because they could earn more money in that. And I actually found that restoration, you, you got to work on great courses. Um, it was actually harder work because there's a lot of process involved. Huh? We discussed yeah. that earlier before the podcast on a couple of other clients where you basically have to make people do things they don't want to do, um, which is which is a skill that not everybody has. I mean, that was me having done consulting was very useful for that part to, to understand how you can, you know, it's like telling somebody you have to stop smoking. Yeah, the, the analysis is very easy, but getting them to actually stop mm. smoking is hard. And it's the same with, you know, with changing golf courses. Sometimes the analysis is pretty obvious. You know, you take these trees away. I guess it's kind of a, a mixture in a way, isn't it, of, of skills in that you're you're having to do some sort of archival research in the case of a restoration where you're having to go back and try and find some yeah. some old photos or or look at an architect and try and kind of, you know, find lost bunkers or lost green sites. You're also having to maybe juggle some of the practicalities of of, you know, maybe drainage concerns or how the course plays. And then as you were alluding to there, Frank, there's the political aspect as well, which is maybe trying to convince committees at golf clubs and, and, and people who have never seen the course as it was originally laid out that it's worthwhile returning to, um, you know, the, the, the original architect's um, vision. Yeah, it, it, it's multifaceted. And, and you have architects who are very talented but only have certain elements. And, you know, there are people that are very artistic but they cannot communicate. And they have a, dis- you know, they have a big disadvantage because they tend to be the ones who say this is how it goes and nothing else. And if they're famous enough, they can get away with it. But most people aren't famous enough. Even the famous ones aren't famous enough. And you still have to negotiate. You still have to talk with people. I don't think it's really politics. Uh, I think politics can get involved. I call it process. And it's called process consulting, which is basically understanding how pe- most people have an aversion to change, especially if they're used to something and they like it. And if you mm. to change their that, is it requires a certain process, which is you know standard psychology, how to do that. And uh, but you have to know how to do it. And it is listening. And, and the trick is that in the end, it has to be their project, their restoration, their renovation. If it's my renovation, my restoration, it's not going to work. And that has to be with the greenkeeper, with the course manager. It has to be with the members. It has to be with the committee. And that's the biggest issue there is dealing with what, you know, with a lot of people just don't know. And I can't blame them. They just don't know enough about it. So they're, as Simpson would call it, they're ignorant. That's a strong word, but that's how we phrased it. Um, and they're overconfident. So they think they know more and they don't know much or not enough. And that's where it comes in that you educate them. That's why I, you know, I, I sometimes say, even though I'm not religious, but I, I, what I do is a lot of it is missionary work. Just go out and explain, mm. you know, go out to a club and explain why it's important that they should, you know, look, look at Blackwell. You are the proud custodians of a very special Fowler Simpson design, which had, you know, 50 years of entropy. And that's a pity, you know, it's like, a, it's like a painting you found in the attic, which is completely dirty and you have to clean it up and bring back the old original details. Mm. And, and we're kind of maybe we're at Blackwell. We're not, we're not at the end of that process, but we're well through it. And you can yeah. really start to see the benefits. And you also 
going back to that political point as well, or you know, to your to your process point, um, you can start to see a huge amount more trust there as well because progress drives trust, and trust drives more progress, doesn't it? Whereas, you know, it's difficult when you first get onto that wagon because sometimes the concepts can feel really foreign and. You know, we've joked before with with Clates, we've talked obviously at Blackwell, Frank, when we've talked about things like tree removal and things like that. And they they're big leaps of faith for people to take. But when you when you look at the progress there and, you know, Ed, you've also shared pictures of things that have been going on in New Zealand and you just look at the the progress there when you when you take those leaps of faith and they're enormous. But um, it doesn't always make the process any easier necessarily for Greens committees and places like that. So no, and that it's it's exactly what you say. Say it's it's a lot of people are scared. I mean, you're on a committee, you know, you're going to be a captain for a year. Do you want to be remembered for, as the one who made the big mistake? Mm, it's better. It's easier to do nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in some sense, there's always this fear. And one of the biggest drawbacks that our profession has is that we don't, I think we're already in the last five years have gotten made major, major progress in, in trying to visualize things for clients. And I think the next 10 to 15 years are going to be amazing. I've been reading a lot about artificial intelligence, about deep learning. And I think what's going to happen is, I think it's going to be, you know, technology is going to allow us to do much more virtual reality. And maybe in 10 years time, you're just going to strap all, you know, everybody's going to strap on the virtual reality headset. And you're going to say, this is what, this is what it's going to look like. Mm. And then they go, look. Well, I, where's the other tree that I like so much? But, you know, other than that, they'll, they'll get it and they'll understand. Because I think, you know, basically people, people have no clue about sort of maybe the theory, but they do understand when they, once they see it, they, they understand that they like it, but they're just scared. It's like, you know, once you take, usually what happens is when you have a massive tree renovation job, like we're doing at New Zealand now, and like we've done it and we're in the process of doing it at the Addington. Before, if you beforehand ask people, they're going to be very scared. Afterwards, when you then show it, once you've done it, they're going to go like, oh, it's not that bad. It's actually, I like it. It's, you know, this is, oh, I didn't know it was going to be like this. Frank, you're, de- okay. you're, de- you're defining trend. What you're doing, Frank, is defining a trend. Today, you know, I was there with a new client of ours, and it's, it's osmosis. So the fact that the brave people have done this, other people will be braver. That's just human psychology. And yep. committees will go and see other things and people will talk to, you know, it slowly spreads. And, and um, I think that's that's how you evolve into trends. That's how things happen, whether it's in golf or anything else in life. I think I think you're fully right. There's one more thing that's important. And we, we recently actually wrote that in a client, um, uh, how do you call it, engagement letter that we, we signed. And that is that you have to have a long term commitment. Um, these processes that we described do not work well in a, in a hit job, just come in and do something and go out again. Um, and that's unfortunately how a lot of the work in the UK was done over the last say 20, 30 years. There, there were long-term relationships, but not, you know, not as many as I think there should have been. Um, and what I mean with that is that, um, you know, the longer you're in there and you do a good job, you have a good, you have a good rapport with the client you get to understand the client much better with every step. The, clips, the client starts understanding what you're doing with every step much better. And that leads to continuous you know, progress. I mean, if I would have only had two years at Blackwell, where would we be? You know, and, and Blackwell has been an interesting situation where we, 
We had a slow start. We did everything in-house. We had to teach everything. So the beginning work wasn't maybe as, as sophisticated as you'd like right away. But at the end, everybody learned and learned and learned. And now we're making good progress. And I think, you know, uh, and that's because we were committed, uh, because there was a commitment to keep going, going, going. If we would have stopped after two years and you would have brought somebody else in again who would have said, oh, let's do this, that, or the other, let's make the bunker square, or let's do, you know, let's plant trees, or let's put a fountain in the in the in the in the pond, whatever. You know, that that's what you that's the problem of the UK, is that, and I think that was also said on Ed's uh definitely also Clayton mentioned that, but it's the problem of the short-term orientation of committees in 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 the uk and we're working on that so one of the last engagement that we did is we basically said we will work for you but we want a commitment for eight years mm. huh? just buys long-term progress doesn't it it, it yeah. buys long long long-term buy into a program activity and you know last time ed you were on the pod with clates and the thing we're talking about is it a trek to where you, to, to be on the committee there, you essentially sign on to a long-term plan and oh, yeah. developments and you're part of the process, really. The one that Greg's talking about is exactly the one I alluded to on the call with Clates, on the podcast with Clates. And, um, yeah. you know, it's 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 a great... Comp- I think that exactly what Mike wrote about in that article in December that had just been published before we had the podcast, that whole mindset about why British Green Committees, course committees are... Uh, too short-termist and trying to, that's changing. I think, you know, we we're, we just got engaged by a couple more clients. And again, that's the, not the, the two to three year revolution thing. They're in the middle of changing one and the other one already has changed to something with much yeah. more permanency and getting closer to what Frank sees on continental Europe. And I think that's great for us as service providers to that sort of governance. I think mm. it's a good, a good sort of, point to segue into the kind of main topic which is really about cult and yeah what you i think what you're saying in a roundabout way is increasingly more courses are starting to real, realize the value of their their assets and their importance in, in in kind of being good custodians for for the courses they've got and clearly cult was you know the most prolific architect certainly in the uk and around europe that 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 ever lived you know he's his work is everywhere. You can't you can't miss Colt when you play courses up and down England. So, I thought it'd be really interesting to kind of get your take on on these things because, you know, you play his course really courses really frequently, but you wouldn't necessarily, you know, to the to the untrained eye know what you're looking for. Before we kind of get talking about Colt more specifically, I guess I'm interested to get your take, Frank, as someone from Holland, to understand how you kind of look at cult you know in terms of you know his his legacy what was his do you you know is the work sort of still inspiring is it still relevant to today i mean kind of just help us summarize cult in 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 your eyes really well i mean the first thing is i mean cult's legacy is 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 amazing in that it's large and very very high quality i mean i'm you know think of it i mean he 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 was involved or built, you know, around 250 golf courses, of which, you know, I may by now have seen about half. Um, and I, you know, maybe there were one or two where I was a bit disappointed, and that was mostly because of the land or because he wasn't, you know, there when it got built. But everything else was is is fun, it's good, it's solid, uh, good routings, uh, good strategy on most of the holes, you know, and that. 
that's amazing. I mean, that's amazing, and especially in those days where they were, you know, it wasn't like, get, let's get on EasyJet and spend an hour and you're in London. No, it was like, you know, send a letter. I mean, I've read it, uh, letters to the Kenimer, you know, uh, a Dutch lease course uh, near Amsterdam, where you're basically saying, well, you know, see you in a month time. I'll be coming over with the ferry and the train. And then my regards to Mrs. and the, the tulips are you know, doing very well in the garden. You know, that's the sort of world they were in. And then to do that many courses is amazing. And and, you know, so they they were obviously they were very organized. And what helped was that Colt was very uh, diligent, very um, uh, how do you call it? Uh, I was uh, it's kind of not maybe the nicest way to say, it, but he was almost boringly consistent. Uh, and that meant uh, he was I think he was a very serious guy, religious, um, uh, very, you know, to the point. And that that you know he had his principles you know which if you read his what he's if you read his writings which are basically three books and a couple of articles um, it's very clear what they were you know and it was uh, and if you then stuck though if you don't see those things in his golf courses you are absolutely sure that somebody came after him and changed it mm. and that makes my job as a restorer actually quite easy because you know things like you know asymmetry of defense was very important for Colt. Uh, asymmetry of defense is think of a green one side would always be more defended than the other if there were bunkers sometimes there wouldn't be bunkers but even then the defense would be asymmetrical if you find a green that is symmetrically defended something strange is happening now, that happened when i arrived at kenimer many years ago i think 80 percent of the greens were defended with a bunker left and right so i said that's kind of strange so we we dove into the you know historical pictures and guess what every 10 years the greens committee added bunkers because look the hole's easy because it's only defended on the left side. So we have to have a bunker on the right. And that's important, isn't it? Because it, it really just, you know, kind of reinforcing your point, but that brings strategy back into the game, doesn't it? Whereas if you've yeah. got symmetrical bunkering, it really is it's pretty penal. It's kind of a, really just a case of executing the shot, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, basically, if you go through it, if you distill the, you know, I basically distill the the, the, the principles of that, that the basic macro principles that Colt used were basically one work with the natural features of the site so he was one it sounds very obvious now but in his time if, if you'd see he was basically like almost like the first minimalist and the reason why was that they didn't have big equipment so he had to be a minimalist second his second point was if you're going to change things make them look natural again you think well of course you do that but if you see some of the stuff that was got built in the beginning of the 1900s it was you know square bunkers you know, triangular mounds, the craziest things. Number three, he was very much a links man. So for him, everything had to be links. So even if you went to an inland site, it was it had to be a links course style. So bumper run, uh, short grass, uh, lots of, you know, not big rough, et cetera, et cetera. So then his routing, he was probably one of the best routers, maybe the best router of, of the bunch. Um, in, and what's important there is that you get variety uh, and, and, and variety, what all the old architects talked about a term which I've used in my, you know, uh, the first firm that I worked for, Infinite Variety Golf, uh, infinite variety is what they were striving for. And that meant that if you played a course, it should play differently every day because of wind, because of conditions, because of the match play versus stroke play, whatever. And then... He was very much into stimulating. You know, the fifth point was stimulate the player to play you know, strategically. So think. If you think on Harry Cold courses, you play better than if you do not think. Huh? Six was he was very much into his greens should be defended 
strongly, but once you're on them, it should be a two putt. So not crazy greens, no, no kind of hidden trickery. Yeah, he was, he was, I guess, you know, that's where the, you know, McKenzie was more into much more undulating greens. Simpson also was more into more undulating greens. Paul did build his share of undulating greens, but typically speaking, his greens are relatively flat, but with, mm. you know, with, with, with some smaller micro undulations. And then the final one was, you know, designed difficult for the, for the good players and easy for the average man or, or sympathetic is what you call it, not easy, sympathetic. And that's one that's also misunderstood, which is basically most of his courses, you can put granny on it and she can have a good time and you can put a tour pro on it and he'll have a good time. Mm. And really that's the essence, isn't it, of what, what golf course architecture, you know, even today is striving for, you know, really incredible is that the profession of golf, being a golf course architect never existed before cult really essentially. And, you know, they were professionals who laid out the courses and, you know, then he kind of really debut gig at Rye and goes and works at Sunningdale. And, you know, all these things in retrospect look like kind of just like incredible moments, but really, you know, the fact that he's creating this profession and starting to consult with clubs and implementing these principles. And you just think, well, this is starting from essentially scratch because the profession never existed. Do you think those principles, Frank, kind of evolved over time? Do you think that's stuff that when you visit courses, because he had quite a long career and a fairly broad career, are these things that you think he kind of started to add into as he went? Or do you think, did you think he kind of honed his science? Or do you think he sort of started out pretty much from the get-go with, you know, these are the things that I see as being the key parts of a good golf course. Yeah, he definitely, you know, obviously he, he, he learned. He had pro- different processes in his, um, uh, in his uh, how do you call it, in his uh, career. Um, and obviously the first things that he did were probably not as good as the last things that he did. Or maybe somewhere in the middle he had a peak where some of his work was best. Um, and obviously later in his career he was also working with a group of people around him um what you do see is that the earlier work of colt is sometimes somewhat crude and primitive in the terms of the shaping uh, to give an example some of the back sides of greens will have sudden drop-offs that are very hard to mow uh places like tyneside in the north and Newca- uh, newcastle area had it east devon has it on a number of greens behind it where it really drops off that, those are things that you wouldn't you wouldn't see as much on all later courses like the Pan or um, you know uh, some you know maybe Port Rush is another good example but stuff that got built later on in his career so that's definitely the case I do think that the basic elements were there but some of the craftsmanship was maybe not as much there yet in the beginning and or maybe he didn't have trusted partners he could work as much with as with uh, some of the uh, some of the others. I'm sorry, some of the as as that he had later on. I mean, later on he was working with Frank Harris, and uh, that was you know that made it that made it possible for him to be less on site than that you would have expected him to have to be. Huh? I guess he's in some ways a little bit revolutionary. If you know, Sam makes a good point there about he's almost the first court you know professional course architect, really, for want of a better term. Um, I guess old Tom Morris did his fair share of designs uh, late in the 19th century, but to take, you know, courses like Rye and, and Muirfield, which are a lot to Harry Cole, they they kind of fly in the face of the traditional out and back links routing that I guess a lot of Scottish courses and a lot of other old Tom designs were known for. Um, is, is that something that you say comes through on a lot of uh, Harry 
Harry Colt's courses, Frank, I know you mentioned he, you know, he, he's probably the best router of that time period. Uh, um, and those two courses for me, just having played them, um, stand out as being particularly like exciting in terms of how they challenge a player to, to think about the wind and, uh, you know, confront different challenges from one hole to the next, rather than the traditional kind of straight out and straight back that you see in Scotland be- before his time. Yeah, well, I mean, yes, I think what happened was when he took golf from the, call it from the, from the links courses to the inland courses, the sites would be different because keep in mind, why was out and back in the, in the links courses? Because that was the links land that was, you know, common land that was available. So basically you played it out and then until you had enough of it or nine holes and then you turn around and come back. That wasn't the typical layout that you would have on an inland course. Um, and what you then found was on a, in the beginning at Sunningdale, even though it was an inland course, and even though the site was different, he was still laying out 18 holes, uh, which then changed when they started thinking, well, when more and more people started playing golf, if you, if you put the curve next to it of how many people were playing golf, at a certain point in the early 1900s, the, the, the pressure on golf courses became so large that it became important to have two starting points. And that's where you then got the two loops of nine. Um, you know, you're coming from a, a site, you know, you're coming from an area from a, you're coming from a position where they're, you know, the original golf courses were out and back because that's what, how the land was. It was the narrow strip between the call of the agricultural fields and the sea that wasn't useful to anybody else it was common land. And that was being used for golf. Uh, mm. Now you didn't find that kind of funny enough. The, the one place which has that a little bit is, um, uh, in Leeds, uh, the old Woodley. Has yeah. that a little bit. That's an out and back kind of, uh, uh, but that's rare. Most of the other sites are kind of, you know, at least two loops of nine. Um, and what you see is it's, it's especially the older inland course that still have the out and back in it. I think Sunnygill Old, um, uh, Old Woodley, uh, Tyneside had that a little bit as well. And those are all the like cold courses, you know, around 1903, four, five, uh in that period i think it's good because you've you've just mentioned Orwoodley, which is a, a good junction point i think for the pod so so obviously that was mackenzie's first design and at the time i think the committee were pretty pretty nervous to kind of let this this young guy just go completely loose on 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 their new golf club and colt was there to kind of supervise and kind of put his arm around mackenzie for want of a better term mackenzie's works obviously feels like it's sort of on almost like a grander scale, Mackenzie feels like he's much more flamboyant as an architect, or certainly that's the impression you get from someone who's a non-expert like myself, because you're looking at, you know, clearly Mackenzie's work with places like Augusta and Cypress Point and stuff. Is that a, is that a fair representation or is that just a, a random point of view from an ill-informed podcast host, do you think? Sm- Frank? Small sample bias. <laughs> it could be, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think, you know, basically... Um, the reason why Mackenzie was in America was because, was because he got divorced and he couldn't stay in the UK anymore. I mean, if that would, and that would have never happened to Colt, given the type of person that he was. Mm. Um, Mackenzie was also very much, you know, if Colt would say, I did this so, I did XYZ, I'm absolutely sure he did XYZ. If Mackenzie said, I did XYZ, I would check it. <laughs> really? Yeah. Mm. And, you know, they're very different people. I think Mackenzie was maybe more, uh, maybe slightly more artistic and and um, in certain things. I think he learned some tricks from maybe even from Simpson and the Wilder bunkering. 
which came up later on in his career. Um, I think McKenzie was a very good, was a, Colt was a very good player. Uh, McKenzie was a very average player, but a good putter. And that's why there's an emphasis on Wilder Greens with his designs, I would think. Um, yeah, I think McKenzie was smart, as smart as Colt. And there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of, um, uh, how do you call it, respect, definitely between Colt uh, and, and McKenzie. Maybe he didn't write it down. I think McKenzie wrote about Colt. But what we do know is that Colt paid off the debts of Mrs. McKenzie when McKenzie died. Wow. See. Yeah, well, that, that was, in the, I think, in the hot tree thing. And, of course, that tells you a lot because, you know, why would Colt do that? Why would you, you know, that there must have been respect when that happened. Or maybe he was just a very nice guy. Yeah, so he, I mean, he clearly had some core values, which you alluded to earlier in the in the yeah. podcast, Frank. Which, um, yeah, I guess interestingly as well, he, he I'm around thinking he was originally a, a solicitor in the city prior to taking the job as the secretary at Rye. So, um, yeah, maybe some interesting parallels with your own career about going to the city and then moving moving from there onto onto the world of course architecture. And maybe yeah. Bruce is going to abandon a fledgling career in in law and maybe sort of double down on on the golf industry. <laughs> maybe maybe he'll just go full time on Cookie Jar. Who knows? Who knows? That's, I, I have a theory about this bit because this is, I think, where Frank and I have known each other now for quite a few years. But I think we get on well because we both come out of finance. And actually, at the heart of, I ran a research department of bank. Frank was obviously in capital mar- uh, capital markets. But actually. The fact is that in both cases, we're used to working in research-driven, process-driven, um, you know, you, you get to the, you, you see, seek to solve the solution before you start trading, to use a, probably a bad analogy. And I think that's why we share a mindset. And actually, that's very positive because when you come to restorations, you've got to do the preparatory work, you've got to do the research, all the stuff we've discussed in previous conversations. And um, probably our background in finance might give us a bit of discipline in that area, Frank, I think. Yeah, it's just a. I think it's. I think it's having a. In my case, also an engineering background. Um, you know, you, you tend to be looking at things from a very elemental. You want to understand things. Um, you want to understand why is it like that, and of course, you know. Sometimes you know we talked about cold. Uh, Simpson was very different. Mackenzie was different. Simpson was you know very you know with Simpson you never know if you see something crazy on a course you never know if it was there. I mean, Simpson went on record saying, you know, it's very important to put a really bad hole in a round just to make people realize how good the other ones are. <laughs> Which hole is that at Blackwell, out of interest? Yeah, I knew you were going to ask that. Um, <laughs> well, I think I know what he's going to say. <laughs> well, do you guys have any 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 ideas? I mean, there's some weird holes. at uh, Seven, at probably. You'd yeah, say. yeah, seven would be the weird yeah. one. Yeah, that's an awkward one, but is it a bad hole? I don't like mm. to walk back, but then, but then I don't like to walk back to eight. But then, to be fair, the tee in the past used to be next to the green, and you hit over the corner of the field. Yeah, be- long before any health and safety regulations, uh, highways, highways code, or highways agencies were getting in the way. Yep. Yeah, I mean that's it's an interesting point though, because um, you know you obviously do a lot of work on Simpson courses as well, of which of, of which Blackwell is one. Um, do you think that there are some significant differences between these architects? I know you mentioned with McKenzie preferring slightly tricked up greens, whereas Colt was maybe more in favor of a, a safe two part. Are there, are there significant, you know, differences of opinion? And I guess to what extent is there you know, the, the work that you're doing now in, t- in terms of restoring courses, are there many common themes you can really pick out that unite these architects? It seems that 
trying to bring strategy back is one of them, but then maybe that's quite a sort of general open-ended term. And I, I guess just for someone who's a, a bit of a lay person like myself, could you perhaps, you know, maybe help us understand some of these unifying principles um, that are informing your work today? Well, what we, what we try to do is, is it's, it's, we try to blend a number of things. We try to, we try to go, we try to understand what was the guiding philosophy that the, the architect used to design the golf course. If there's any writings, if there's any old pictures, it will help us to understand it better, to give a sense. And the pictures are important because they, for mm. instance, show the bunker styling. Bunker styling is a very you know, aesthetic kind of visual thing. But, um, you know, sometimes Colt would write, like, this is my purpose. This is what I want to do. I want it to be, I don't know, like a, sh- a, sh- a short two-shotter or into the wind with a green that's higher or something like that. He would write stuff like that. Mm. Um, uh, I think what's important is also that we, you know, what we often find is when we arrive at a golf course, it's become very difficult to play for the average man because narrow fairways, high rough, um, you know, symmetrical, symmetrical defense, bunkering, uh, overtreed. And, and those things make life very difficult for the average player, whereas they actually make it easier for the good player. So um, because the good player is pretty accurate and he doesn't have to think anymore because there's only one option, namely in the middle of the narrow fairway. And, and that's what we then start getting into. And we start introducing like short grass around greens is, a, is what I think um, uh, is called an equalizer. I think uh, what, what it does is it basically, it makes it harder for a good player and it makes it easier for a weaker player, which is very mm-hmm. counterintuitive. But what happens if you introduce short grass on, and firm greens the handicap of low handicappers go up and the handicaps of higher handicaps come down on a golf course. Yeah. And the reason for that is just think of it. I mean, like think of my mom, handicap 20 when she was still playing, handicap 22. So she just missed the green and she'd get her putter out and just put up. And, you know, if you're handicap 22, that's fine. But if you're Ed and you're plus something, you know, you have to make your up and down. You've just put some very high expectations on Ed's golf game there, Frank. Yeah, well, he, you know, he's a player. I'm a hacker. I'm a, I, I, I started, unfortunately, as a hockey player. And then after that, it's, there's no chance that you'll ever get a good golf swing. Um, but um, yeah. so effectively, the, the trick is that you try to do things that make it, you know, that, that equalize it, that make it fun, mm. you know, not losing a lot of golf balls on a, on a golf course and having fun, but still also making it challenging. Or for the good players and that's possible i mean maybe not for the best of the world but for say top top country amateurs yes you can still do that it brings in enjoyment though doesn't it back to the game as well you know no one wants to no one enjoys putting the ball in their pocket no one enjoys spending time looking for a golf ball and you know around the green short grass gives you Pace more options as well. as well yeah and 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 there's a lot that goes with that and it's interesting when you think how you know, it's kind of linking back to the last podcast we did, Ed, where we were talking, Mike, and, and about committees. But, you know, the fact that, you know, low handicap golfers at the golf club, the club champion, are typically making big decisions on the future of the course. It's naturally made that kind of increasingly penal over time. And I suppose unwinding that is really the the trick and convincing a club that it's not going to make it any any kind of easier necessarily. What One question I've got for you, Frank, is when you go and visit all of these golf courses, particularly the cult ones, what do you see as being like the, maybe the most raw cult course? Like what, what's been kind of maintained to its truest kind of original intent in your opinion? Because clearly a lot have changed quite significantly over time. Do you, 
do you look at one and think, yeah, do you know what? That's that's probably as close close to what it should be. Well, the point is with that is um, usually it's good when the 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 less people did, the better it would be for a golf course. On the one hand, except for cutting down trees, right? because if you do not check the growth of trees, you you clog the golf course. Um, yeah, it's tough to tough to say which is like the most original uh, cult that I would have seen. Um, a lot of people would expect that to be like Swinley, but they've changed quite a lot. Um, uh, yeah, I'd have to. It's a good question. I think the the pond we didn't really change too much. I think that's still pretty original. Um, the problem is most courses do change. Most courses do change, and it's it's mostly when people haven't done anything really too much. That's 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 usually a good sign. Then you're just dusting it off. Well, Frank, I have to say maybe the answer to that question. Sorry to try and answer for you, but thinking it through might be the Addington because it just yeah. was completely left. Yeah. It's like you talk about paintings in the attic. This one was in the attic for a heck of a yeah, long that's, time. That's true, except for the trees. So if you take the tree factor out, but I was sorry, I was making myself too difficult. I think you're right. Addington could be one. I think Pond could be one. Um, to be honest, uh, you know, place Falkenstein is another one, which is mostly there. Um, and, you know, places where they haven't had uh, significant upgrades, like rebuilding greens. I mean, that's where my heart sinks. You know, we, we, we recently had a new client, a cold client, where, you know, they had changed the, all the greens 10 years ago. And they're USGA greens. And, well, a lot of what was there um, went away with that. Um, that's why I'm always, always hoping that when people, I mean, that's where you do the missionary work. You tell people this, if you have to change a green and you have an original cold green, survey it. Make sure you have the original survey of the green before you take it away, because then if it doesn't work out your plan, whatever you wanted to do, you can put it back in. Ed's, Ed's shaking, it's is, is nodding because his home club has a similar problem where they did that to a green and, uh, you know, uh, hopefully we will have the blueprints to one day put it back. Um, it, and that's, that's, people don't understand that. And that's, that's, that's sometimes sad. So that's why I try to explain to people, listen, do make sure you understand what you're doing before you do it. I mean, an interesting anecdote was a, a course that I, in, in Holland, when at in the beginning of my career, and I was invited to go on a course walk with the Greens chairman. He was in, his neighbor introduced me to him and walked along. And this was the Heathland course, not a cult, but you know, I won't mention the name, but basically after the, after the walk, uh, we sat down for a coffee and the Greens chairman said, so what do you think of it? I said, well, I like the golf course, um, uh, really like this, that, 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 that. It's got a lot of potential. And he's like, oh, well, what, what, were there any things you didn't like? I said, yeah, well, there were three things I really didn't like, which was A, B, and C. And then it was silent for about 20 seconds. He said, we just changed those last year. Mm, yeah, awkward. Yeah, at which, point, at which point, of course, I did not get the job. But what happened was he stood down the year after. His neighbor became the new green chairman, and he hired me. Mm. So, but it's... It's this is what you typically see. Now, was that guy a bad person? No, he just didn't have he just didn't have a clue. And he was told, he was literally told by another architect, oh, this is this fits with your course, this fits with your styling. 
Okay, it was a British-style Heathland course, and basically it had American-style bunkers in it. But he didn't know what an American-style bunker was compared to a British-style bunker. That comes back to Clayton's point about, you know, the custodians and who are they, and, and whether they're actually, a, you know, whether they really are, sorry to sound pompous, but fit to be on the Green Committee. Yeah, plus, plus it's, also, it's also a culture. As you said, I mean, even when I started in the UK, Colt wasn't that, you know, I think the brand image of Colt and the older architects has become much more important in the UK than it was 15 years ago. And um, it still is less important in places like Germany and, 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 and Spain and, and Italy and France, where they, you know, yeah, sure, it's, he was a famous guy, but, you know, this is a golf course. Let's just, you know, rebuild the greens and put some bunkers in. And, and there you really have to explain it. And luckily, even there, you're getting the first movements, but it's much more an uphill battle. I guess, yeah, I mean, maybe a counterpoint, which I don't necessarily um, agree with. But some of these people might say, well, our golf course is almost just like art. And it's it's a case of beauties in the eye of the beholder. And, and actually, you can kind of make these changes if, if there's enough agreement and people like them. When the reality is, you know, architects like yourself would say, well, actually, no, there are, although you can kind of, play around and be created to a certain extent actually there are kind of guiding principles in place um well yeah i mean can i bruce just to add to that i mean yes i'm very serious and i get very upset with some of my colleagues who pretend or do do a call of a historical analysis and then do not use any of the findings of the historical analysis at all in the work that they do i mean i will do i will do many many things before i will change an historic cold grief that for me is a very big step. And I don't see that with committees. And I also don't see it with some of my colleagues that are, you know, just look around. I mean, there are how many greens are being changed on historic golf courses. And that's a pity because it's a big, it's a big step. And I think people need to realize that. It doesn't mean you can always avoid it. I mean, we're, we're looking at a course now, which has a par three right next to a, a neighbor, which is, it's just a health and safety hazard. And it will be, and it will become bigger and it will become a bigger and bigger and bigger problem. So that's a good case where you say, well, maybe we'll have to rebuild that in a different place. But it's only after you look at all the possible ways that you can avoid it. And even then you would survey it and make sure that you have it for posterity, what the design was, and maybe we'll even replicate it in a new location. But, you know, just look at some of the famous cold courses that have been changed. I mean, you know, uh, again, we don't have to go into names, but you know the ones. There's a famous one near London that got changed massively. Um, you know, Northern Ireland had one that got big changes. And is that, you know, it, I, that, that to me, unless there are very, very, very good reasons, other than just, yeah, we're going to get a tournament this year or something like that, you're making big changes forever. And is that the work you mentioned there about the, the par three and the health and safety issues, that kind of work there, is that what you would call renovation where you're maybe going to keep a lot of the original blueprint but you would you're saying well actually there, there are going to be our own original additions we're going to make to this thing and actually to, to an certain extent we can we can improve upon this thing it's not like golf course architecture and the wisdom of harry colt and mckenzie you know that that was as good as all golf course architecture is ever going to get to an certain extent you maybe can improve little things here here and there it's just not a brand new build it's it, it's renovation yeah i think there are two two things in, in the argument you make yes sometimes you have to make like royal hague is a good example 
Uh, when I did the, basically what happened at Royal Hague was there, the greens were agronomically uh, a mess because of, you know, long story, but basically they could not salvage them anymore. They had to rebuild them uh, because there were clay layers from the past, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we then looked, we had 13 original greens and over the years they had tinkered with five. So three had moved to another location, one was rebuilt, et cetera, et cetera. What we did there is we said, and that was done by other architects. Um, and what we there said is, okay, the 13 original, we're just gonna replicate. We're just gonna, you know, replicate except for one place where we saw there had been like some, uh, how do you call it, consolidation of the green where some sinkage, which, which basically was, wasn't there before. We could clearly see that that was a design, you know, was a build mistake, which then led to consolidation in one green. So 13, we just replicated. The other five, we basically said, well, they don't look at all like the other 13 because they were rebuilt by other architects who just thought, let's build a green. What we did there is we said, okay, let's try to make these greens look like the other greens, you know? They're not the same, but if you would play Royal Hay, you would probably have trouble, except for maybe one. There would be 17 greens where that look where you, I, most people have difficulty finding more than one or two where they say that's the one that you changed. Mm. And that's what I think you should be doing. Yeah. And do you call that renovation? Do you call that restoration? I don't really care. I think it's a renovation with a very strong input from the know-how. What you're trying to do, it's like if you had a you know, artificial intelligence system, they would say, this is how a Harry Cole green looks like, you know, for this specific situation. That's what you're trying to do. And, and if people can't spot it right away, that that's, means you've done a good job. The other thing which you said was, um, where I take, you know, is this, well, we can, we can improve on it, on cold. Well, let me be very clear. I think in the whole world at the moment, there's probably two architects, maybe even not two, that could improve on Colt's work. Do you believe that? Because I, I think that's interesting, the fact you said that. And I I, I thought, um, similar to Bruce, and there's a lot of people that would say, I get it, like restore my course back to what, you know, Colt or Simpson or McKenzie originally designed, but the game's different. Like, why can't you make it better than they did? And and I'm just playing devil's advocate there. You say no, no, there's there, very I mean, few people. They're, two, they're two different things. They're two different things. The one thing I would tell the clubs is think very long and hard before you get somebody who says, you know, to really change your cold course. You know, um, I'm sure if you asked Andy Warhol if he could improve on Mona Lisa, he would tell you, yes, I can. It's a good way of putting it. Mm. It's yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it is because it's this sort of philosophical discussion of well, are they works of art? Are they kind of like archaeological discoveries or, or artifacts that we need to keep preserved? There's yeah, obviously it's a sport too. It's 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 a really fascinating intersection of all these different issues that's coming together there. And I, I mean, I I totally get your point there, Frank. When you say there's maybe two architects at the moment who could rival Harry Colt's work. Um, and certainly something I think I've noticed more since we've been doing Cookie Jar and had the chance to, to chat to people like yourselves and Clates, et cetera, about architecture and, and some of the principles. And I guess a couple of the more modern courses that I've played in in, in recent months, um, well, not that recent because of lockdown, but I noticed that actually there seems to be in this in this modern age where we have huge advances with earth moving equipment, et cetera, people seem to maybe create the 18 best individual holes and maybe not think of how the routing as a whole fits together. Whereas it, it doesn't seem like you get that with 
golden age courses because the machinery wasn't there and 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 so the the routing was often a lot more simpler and and greens um were located next to to tea boxes etc like, you know things like that um that's just my my take though <laughs> i think i think the 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 equipment is is sort of like makeup for a lady i mean effectively a lady is beautiful or not and that doesn't depend on the makeup the makeup mm. can help and that's the same with equipment i mean equipment can make if you've got a great site and you, you spend a lot of time thinking about a good routing you do not need a lot of equipment and you might have an occasional blind shot if you really were minimalistic i mean i think you know like the pond has one hole which has two blind shots the, the tee shot and the shot into the green if Colt would have had dozers and a big digger, uh, would he have maybe made one of those two shots non-blind? Maybe, you know, hmm. by cutting away a hill. But in essence, the rest of the routing is not dependent on 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 earth-moving equipment. I mean, I built a new course in flat uh, Swinkelsa on flat farm fields. Yeah, I needed massive equipment to make it interesting because the site in itself was less exciting because we do not get to build on sites that they used to be able to build on in the past, mm. except for going to maybe like, you know, some place in, you know, in, in New Zealand maybe has some places, Australia still gives you once in a while a possibility, but you're really finding small places where you can still do it. You know, mm. they're limited. Do you think equipment's got the potential to make almost become a bit of a distraction for new builds and, and, and further work as well? Like putting, well, I, had a, I had a sorry, I had a conversation with um, somebody who's an extremely fine golfer. I won't mention his name, but he's a member of a top five club in this country, and he plays off plus two, and so um, and loves the game. And he's about fifty years old, and he's been around the world, played everything that matters. In my opinion, he's very well travelled. And we had exactly this conversation because we were talking about the Addington. And the fact that it's a par 69 and the fact that, and he said something to me just yesterday, which has resonated in my head. And that was, and Clayton, Mr. Clayton, if you're listening to this, you're going to like this too. He said, if they roll the ball back, it's going to be so much more relevant. And I thought, well, okay, you're speaking as a plus two golfer hits it miles, blah, blah, blah. But clearly there's only limited real estate to do so much to the Addington. It's still an amazing place, but he's right. If you were to roll the ball back, I mean, Frank, what do you think? I think it would um, can only enhance. And then you get into the whole situation where maybe restoring these courses uh, as opposed to building, you know, as Clates was talking about the 8,000 yard course and where we're going inevitably unless they do something, um, they do become more relevant, surely. Yeah, I mean, listen, rolling back the ball is, is like we talked about earlier. It's the analysis is easy. I mean, basically, it's like quitting smoking, you know. Yes, you should quit smoking. Yes, we should roll back the ball. And why is it not happening? Well, because of corporate interests and people are afraid to do it for legal reasons. That's the only reason why it's not working. The good news is for the average player, it doesn't make any difference because they're still for the for them, the Addington is still a you know a good course with a lot of you know with enough length. But just for the elite players, it's it's too short. And a lot is too short. And you know, I don't think it's again, the analysis isn't very hard. Yeah, and I guess the the difficult point counterpoint there that's being raised by the likes of scott force and lou stagner is that well actually you just need trees um trees are a great hazard but as we've talked about in the in the past they really don't do much for the playability of the whole from the um the average 
player's perspective and they're also kind of often an eyesore really so it seems like that that debate is kind of crumpling or that argument i should say is is, is crumbling under the weight of its own contradictions there i think increasingly professional the professional and elite games you know at odds with the amateur game isn't it i think that's the increasing trend the more and more um things continue the more and more things seem to polarize and and with that you know all the stuff that we've just spent the last sort of 45 minutes or so talking about come comes into force um one one thing I, i'm curious about is in the context of cult his traveling and he partnered with a number of people over his time so he partnered with you know allison who who from his cv looks like he really enjoyed traveling to be honest probably uh, probably far too much and, and and obviously partnerships with people like mckenzie um colt's credited as being someone who was instrumental in the development at pine valley uh you know he he did work in he did quite a quite a bit of work on a couple of trips, I believe, or maybe just one trip. I'm not sure to to the United States. How much of an influence do you think he had on that kind of school of architecture out there? There's a lot written about his relationship with Donald Ross. Maybe can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, I think I think um, you know, Colt made the trip uh, before World War One, um, and uh, I think if he, you know. He's lesser known in the U.S. than, say, Mackenzie is, um, uh, and I think that's because his focus was very much on Europe. He also didn't go to Australia, and instead of him going to Australia, Mackenzie went to Australia. Um, Allison did do some traveling, mostly to Japan, but also to America, and Morrison did a lot of travel to continental Europe. So. Um, I think by the time we get to the high, you know, to the, the highest point of Cole's career, he was getting older and more fragile. I mean, basically after 1930, he really didn't travel anymore. And um, which is in some sense for Colt, uh, would have been, he, basically he, it would have been nice if he would have been 20 years younger when, when sort of the highlight of his career happened because then he could have traveled even more. Um, but, you know, this is as it is. I don't think his influence in America was as big as, uh, say that of Mackenzie, and that's why if you talk to Americans, they're much more, especially 10, 50 years ago, they were much more Mackenzie oriented than they were cold. Uh, the more they traveled to the UK and to, to Europe and they see more of his work, the more they realize that he was very good. Um, and very similar maybe to Donald Ross, who also has a very big portfolio of, of courses. Um, yeah, hard to tell. I think, I think again, and the American market, of course, was very influential for a long time especially after the war because that's where all the new building was happening because that's where the money was and that's where then people like robert Trent jones jr came up and and i'm uh, sorry senior came up um and and with that his you know brand of more penal golf you know and that's because there was more money in the states i mean if you look at what happened in, in europe and say between 45 and 60 not much happened because there was no money and the war, you know, obviously would have had a huge impact, you know, the reparations and everything around Europe but, and the cost of that war would have been huge. Whereas, you know, to a certain extent, America was able to kind of kick on from having come out of its recovery from, from the Great Depression, which, um, which, is, which is key. Yeah. There's a lovely story about, um, I read an article uh, about a year ago, which was all about Allison's time in Japan. And uh, I, I hope it's true, but it, it was written, it seemed a well-researched article, which basically said that Allison was working at the time in the Midwest and he got a, he got a, a, a telegram from Colt. I don't know if you know about this, Frank. And, and Colt said, 
you're needed in Japan, keep going. <laughs> Can you imagine in the day of travel? Keep going. So instead of come back, he was basically sent to San Francisco and off he went. Um, and I, I think that's how he finished up in Japan the first or second time was, you know, you're needed. Yeah, well, so I think it was a combination of that plus the fact that, that uh, the, 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 the crisis hit very hard and it basically abruptly stopped any work getting done on any of the courses. Uh, and, and I think Japan, the crisis happened later or, or less to a lesser extent. So that's why there was still work there. Uh, now you see the same, basically the, the, the number of jobs in the 1930s dropped dramatically also in the UK for Colton and his, his, uh, his partners. I've got a I've got a sort of parting question on the on the cult topic, which would be really for our UK audience and well, I suppose anyone really, but for people who maybe don't have that much of an interest or or haven't sort of been curious enough to understand more about cult, how what what would you ask them to keep an eye out for or to appreciate next time they play a cult course that would be something they might not thought of? I I guess I don't know there's anything that stands out where you think yeah, hell, I wish I could kind of tell people to realize this because it's like a light bulb moment. Well, just I think just look at look at every, well, first of all, a typical cold course, if you play it, how many holes did you remember? You know, if it's a typical cold course, and then especially do you remember all four or five of the par threes? You know, basically when he did a routing, he would first look at what are the best positions to put the par threes. So mm. if you play a cold course and you're underwhelmed by the par three, something's happened. Someone's messed it up along the line. Yeah. 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 Well, look at, look at a uh, good example is uh, uh, Cop Teeth, you know, the eighth hole. Used to be a cracking par three. Now it's a stupid par four. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, yeah. I mean, maybe I shouldn't be so blunt, but let's say no, no, like, that's uh, it's interesting because I, I, I was going to ask you. A, it used to be a cracking long par three, really excellent, and and you know uh, it was probably a bit difficult. Somebody didn't like it, and now they've changed it into a par four. So that's a good example. That's one example. So that's one. How many holes do you remember? Do you like them, etc.? Does that come into your mind? The second thing would be, if you would play it more often, would you find a way to play the holes better? Is there is there you know is there a sort of a strategy? In, in the holes and uh, you know the answer to that should be yes it should be there and there should be ways of playing it uh, you know with the asymmetry of defense that we mentioned before um, then you get you know things that are more for people that you know for us call it the more the the, the detail things like he, he tended to have uneven number of bunkers around his greens so one three five and that comes out of Japanese flower arrangements where an uneven number looks more pleasing to the eye than an even number. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So I hadn't so, thought so, about that before. Yeah. So, so that's, that's what I would look at. And I, I think that's pretty much, you know, just, just play them, enjoy it and think why, you know, the typical thing Colt himself said, what will make, you know, the true test of a golf course is will it live? That's what he said, I think was the, the perfect quote. And what he meant with that is that I played for 20 years at Eindhoven. So not for 20 years, but for many years at Eindhoven, which was a cold course near Eindhoven where I grew up. Little did I know it was cold. Little did I know it, you know, it was, was special. And I never was bored. And then I, I moved to London as a banker. And at a certain point, just because it was stressful, the job, I needed to get out and just play some golf to, to relax. 
And it was hard to join a called a traditional club. So I joined a, a new club that was had won many rewards, just newly built, modern style. Played it for a year and I quit because I was bored. And again, mm. I won't mention the name, but it, it was oh. it, it, <laughs> leaving us hanging. Yeah. Let's say it had a lot of bunkers like Tandridge. But and I was bored after a year and I was bored playing and I thought, okay, why am I bored playing this core of course? And why am I still excited every time I go and play my, you know, play Eindhoven? And the answer is short, is strategy. The mm. difference with strategy and, and variety in charity is variety and strategy. Those were the two things rather than eye candy. And maybe this is a terribly um, naive or amateurish question to ask of, of you, Frank, and also you as well, Ed. If you were to recommend a handful or so courses designed by Harry Colt that have still remained largely intact or, or still remain, you know, brilliant tests of golf um, in the UK and perhaps even further afield, which ones would you kind of recommend? Which ones stand out to you as your particular favourites? Okay. Can I go first, Frank? You go first. No, I, I think there are many of them. I mean, basically... The one thing I, I love, I love visiting golf courses, cold courses. I mean, the one thing I would say is to any club that, that listens to this, uh, you know, if I haven't seen your course yet, would you know, <laughs> I, I might, you know, I, and there's any possibility to come and visit you, I'd love to do that. That's, that's my kind of thing. I, I love going to cold courses that I haven't seen yet because there's always something interesting, something new. And some of them are amazing that you haven't seen yet. As said, I've in, in the 120 cold courses I've seen, so I've kind of seen half of them so far. I maybe there's been one or two where I was disappointed. And uh that's very little if you think of it. Out of 120 courses, there were one or two, and they weren't bad courses, but they weren't as good as the other ones. Yeah. That's amazing score. That just tells you. I mean, ones I, I mean, if I go through the ones that I like, yeah, I like, you know, which are the ones I like? I like East Devon, I like Rye. I like, um, you know, pretty much a lot of them around in London are good. Um, obviously, Swinley is good. Uh, Sunningdale is good. Uh, Wentworth East, I like a lot. Um, what else do we go around the, the London area? I mean, you know, basically the Addington, which is half cold, is really, really cool. Um, Tandridge is good. If you haven't seen that, it's wild. Um, what else? I mean, yeah, there's so many. And they all happen to be sat on very good land, don't they? And maybe there's a connection here with the land, because, I mean, not always could Colk, I guess, control the, the land that people had selected to develop a golf oh, course. Oh, you know, Tandridge, but... Tandridge is not ideal. Tandridge is not ideal for golf. I mean, Tyneside is a cool site. Obviously, is a cool golf course, even though the land is also difficult. It's sandy, though. I mean, a lot of the links courses that he that he worked on or built are really good. Um yeah, I mean, there's some really cool golf courses. I mean, Saint, um, what's what's the name of it again? The one in uh, uh, Fort Augustus. That's another cool one near Loch Lomond, in the middle of nowhere. It's got sheep on the fairway. Wow, it's a, that's another cool that you need to see. Really mm. cool, cool. Which was it's almost like a muni. I'm sure he had no budget to build it at all, but it, it's a it's a really cool golf course as well not great but it's a really cool golf course and it, yeah i remember stuff of that that i don't remember on other courses even though the maintenance was to say the least average i mean if you have sheep running around i mean they had <laughs> lambs that were rubbing their 
you know, they're rubbing their shoulders against the flagpoles. All good golf courses have sheep on in my limited experience of sheep on golf courses. Ed, how about you? Because Frank's left fairly few gaps there in, in, in Colt CV. So you're going to have to really be on your A game here. Uh, I'm lucky because uh, although I've seen many less than Frank, I've seen one that he hasn't seen. And I, I love it. Um, and it's not in England. But I'm a great fan of Toronto. Um, Toronto is an amazing cult course, which was beautifully restored by a competitor, did a great job. Um, and uh, the reason it's great is because it's on a very funky piece of land, number one, with some wonderful landforms. But also, um, I can honestly say, even on the par threes, I mean, if I go to each edge of the tee, but forgetting the par threes for a minute, and they're great par threes, but uh, on the par fours and fives, if I go down the very left edge of each fairway and I go down the right edge of every fairway, I've got totally different golf to play. And, you know, nothing defines great courses to me. And I know this, if Clates was here, he'd say the same thing. If Mike DeVries was with us, he'd say the same thing. You know, about Mr. Simpson saying the middle of the fairway shouldn't be the best place to be. But taking that to the next natural conclusion is... You know, I think when Clays was on, he spoke about that hole at Royal Melbourne where you can be right by a bunker, but you can go 80 yards of fairway in one direction. Every yard you go, the hole gets worse and worse and worse. Like this. Oh. That's why he loves the road hole. Well, imagine that dynamic on every single hole. I can only think of maybe one that doesn't, that formula doesn't work in 18. And it's unbelievably fun land. And um, and, they cut, and actually, they just sent me uh, a video of cutting down a lot of trees over. They've got rid of a lot of their tree problems over the winter. Um, so of the non-British cults, um, that's one I adore. If you ever get to Canada and you get a chance to play it, you must play it. Yeah, but I mean, if, if you think of it, with, you know, which ones should you also see? You should see Falkenstein in Germany, really, really good cult. You should see De Palme in Holland. You should see Royal Hague, even though it's Allison, but it's really, you know, really unique. If you're there... Go definitely go and see Kenimer as well, Eindhoven. Um, you know, there's a lot of good golf. Then if you, you know, Knokke in Belgium, which is a links course, um, it, it needs to be firmed up. It needs to be, you know, it, it's been drifting for a long time. But I think over, at a certain point they'll get they'll get to the senses and get somebody involved who will bring it back to a cult. Then you have Le Touquet, which is fun. Grandville in France is fun. Um, so yeah, that's there, there, so many. When you hear them, you talking about them, and and Ed, like interesting one in terms of you know Toronto there. So you know now that was something that you know Stanley Thompson's obviously massive in Canada in terms of his his legacy of work, and 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 I think I, I might be wrong, but I think a lot of that kind of stemmed that was his home club and a kind of cult was kind of inspiration there i have one last question which which is i was just wanted to get your steer on which was around sustainability we get asked a lot of questions into our sort of dms and inboxes about sustainability in golf am i right in saying that in in the netherlands there's laws around using kind of artificial chemicals as part of agronomy and there's a lot of a lot of kind of people now looking at you know what will how will sustainability be incorporated into the future of golf course management and architecture? Do you have a, do you have a view on that, Frank? Yeah, well, I mean, basically, uh, in Holland, you can't use any herbicides or pesticides or chemicals anymore. And that's actually an EU ruling. I thought that was the reason you guys quit. Might EU. Be. I, yeah, I've got <laughs> no idea. If I'll, I'll latch on to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a bad Brexit joke. Um, no. Um, so, so effectively, Effectively, um, uh, yeah, we have that. And what that means is that finally 
members are understanding, you know, that's what's happening is that a lot of clubs in Holland have started removing trees around greens because you can't afford that anymore. And so what you're seeing is we're going to have, if you look into the future, we're going to have a lot less water on golf courses. So we're going to go back to, I remember, you know, flying above Heathrow as a banker in a holding pattern. So think of the, in the 90s and looking out of my window and I would see all these green circles and then like yellow stripes, which was, you know, all these good golf courses that weren't watering their fairways during a drought. And I think we're going to go back to that because we're just not going to have the water anymore to, to, to irrigate fairways and everything. So you're going to have to make choices. That's point number one. Point number two is we're not going to be allowed to use things that kill bees and other insects, et cetera, et cetera, which is why we can't use a lot of the herbicides, pesticides, et cetera, anymore. Yeah, you can debate if that's true or not true, but we can't use them anymore. And that means that you cannot work with grasses that are very disease, uh, how do you call it, prone, like poa. And what that means is you're going to have to use other grasses and you're not going to have, and you're going to have to not cut them too short. Otherwise, they're going to be disease prone. And, uh, you know, add all of that up. And that means quite a different tact to what's happening, definitely in the United States, which have gone down the track of very, very high maintenance. And, you know, mm. oh, you know, everything has to be pristine. But you're basically on the intent. You've got basically the grass on the intensive care. I'm not an agronomist, but I'm kind of saying it in a crude way. And effectively, what you need to do is you, if you can't give them the medicine anymore, you need to make sure they're healthy enough to stay alive without the medicine. And the only way to do that is to use the right grasses, give them the optimal growing conditions and not cut them too short. And that's the future. And that, you know, in some sense, I was, I remember um, at a certain point, I visited a course uh, uh, in the uh, Bamber Castle. I don't know if you've ever heard of oh, it. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, in the Northeast. And uh the greenkeeper was, I think it was close to retirement, but he'd been there for a long time. They did not have, believe it or not, they didn't even, they had definitely had no fairway irrigation, but they also didn't have green irrigation. So he hand watered all his greens. Wow. And I remember the green chairman was asking me, should I have, should we install irrigation? And I remember looking past him and the head greenkeeper was nodding his head like that. No, <laughs> you know, like, so I would say the right answer. And, um, and how did he make it work? Well, he cut his greens at, at higher, I think six millimeters, uh, but he rolled the hell out of them. And because of that, because it was pure festuca, you know, a typical a, a kind of grass, uh, they were playable. They were, they're actually fun to play. Mm. Now, I'm not saying we can do that everywhere. We can do that, but it just tells you that we're going to have to be more creative going forward. Yeah. And maybe they're going to find grass types that are more resistant to disease. Hopefully that will help. But I think we're going to see changes. And also in the UK, because you guys, you know, in Holland, at least we got so much water, we don't know what to do with it. But even we're going to have shortages of water. Well, the UK has a lot less water and you're going to have a lot of issues going forward. So I think if I were a club in the UK, and I think a lot of them have done this already, I would be really thinking and looking at, okay, how's my irrigation, you know, needs going to be for the next 20 years or so. Fascinating stuff. F fascinating insight. Uh, really enjoyed having you guys on the pod and for being so giving of your time um ed have you kind of got any sort of parting shots for us and you know a lot of people out there really interested in your work we we're talking about that before we jumped on what can we expect to see from from cdp um well frustratingly there's a few things we can't just quite announce but um we uh 
Mike DeVries is busy in the States. Uh, he's going out to Meadow Club, which is the great McKenzie course in San Francisco. He's got some work to do out there. And uh, he's got a couple of commissions just picked up in Michigan. Uh, in Europe, uh, we do have a couple of UK clients which we're just finalizing terms and uh, we'll, be, uh, um, we'll be announcing that very shortly. So we're going to keep Frank very busy once travel's allowed again. We'll get you back here quickly, Frank. Um, and obviously the big news that you very helpfully helped us to break in January about Seven Mile Beach. So we're beginning to go through logistics of Seven Mile Beach. We have quite a few team meetings to work out how many of the team are going to be down in Tasmania for how long. And we hope to get started at the end of September if COVID permits. And uh, that's the current plan. So it's busy times um, and uh, frustratingly can't say much more than that just at the minute, I'm afraid, Sam. No, but we, we're, you know, again, we, we're very keen. We're, we're in business in the UK. We got, you know, we're, we're very much looking forward to working long term with a lot of, you know, exciting players in the UK. And I think we've talked to a lot of people and um, I think watch this space is what I would say. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Fabulous stuff. Well, guys, uh, thanks again for joining. Uh, we've really enjoyed having you on and uh, we look forward to seeing you a bit more in person this year as restrictions ease. Yeah. Best of luck with all the projects. Well, so, yeah. Golf day. yeah, definitely. Yeah, of course. The, yeah. Thanks for the invite. Absolute yeah. pleasure. Well, you know, it's a, a ringing endorsement for the quality of work that's happened at Blackwell, uh, I must admit. So I think we're really excited about bringing a lot of people there because if you haven't for people who haven't played it it's a fabulous place and and and, and that for yeah, us is really great great opportunity for a pot <laughs> synergies yeah we're going to get them Absolutely. turned up we're going to cut them to about half a mil and we're going to have them running like marble it's going to be great fun guys it's been a pleasure and uh yeah we'll uh we'll look forward to speaking to you Watch soon this yeah okay thanks